Well, hello, folks. Welcome to The Sacred Speaks. My name is John Price. I'm your host. And today I've got a fantastic interview participant, Miriam Volat. And I want to talk a little bit about her, go into some details, housekeeping on the podcast, and then jump into the interview. First and foremost, I would like to read her bio. So if I could get over here to it. Miriam Volat, co-director of River Sticks Foundation and Indigenous Medicine Conservation Fund. Executive Director of IPCI is an educator, organizer, facilitator, and ecologist with a passion for soils and nutrient cycles. She works nationally and internationally to increase health in all systems. She's dedicated to the biocultural conservation of peyote and other sacred medicines, supported by the IMC Fund, and works in any way she can to ensure the conservation of these medicines for indigenous communities and their precious ways of life. As a mom, she's fortunate. Her daughter, Cora, also supports her work. Check her out at the River Sticks Foundation, links below, imc.fund, and ipci.life. So Miriam, thanks for participating. Thank you for doing what you do. That was uh, a fantastic conversation to have, and I'm eager to introduce it to uh, you, the listener, and the viewer. Uh, I also want to talk a little bit about River Sticks, just reading from their website, River Sticks Foundation. The River Sticks Foundation is a philanthropic organization that strives to work at this boundary place through grant-making and seeding nonprofits. River Sticks attends to the places in society and our psychology which have been relegated to the shadow out of fear, ignorance, and Puritan influence. Recognizing that which is repressed only festers and breeds pathology and its unnatural separation. In so doing, may we come into greater balance, beauty, and belonging. So thanks to River Sticks Foundation, I had a wonderful time at the Parliament of World Religions, hanging out with all you guys. What a, uh, what a great crew. I really enjoyed that. Thank you. Okay, onward. I also have another bit of gratitude for Hunt Priest. Check out episode 94 with Hunt Priest and Jessica Felix Romero, where we talk about Ligare, and I really have Hunt to thank for connecting me with Miriam. So thanks, Hunt. Uh, just a couple notes. I want to shout out to the Young Center, Young Center, or Young Houston, J-U-N-G Houston.org. Love all that they are doing. Uh, disclaimer, I'm, I'm on the board over there, so I'm a pretty big advocate of the work they do. I want to thank Modern Nations and direct you to the track that's at the end of the episode um, with uh, uh, this amazing song that's been a theme song called Clouds. Um, thanks, guys, in Modern Nations. And uh, for the Center for Healing Arts and Sciences, this is a boutique integrative wellness center that my wife and I started many years ago, and they are, we are the sponsors of this podcast. It's, quite frankly, the reason why this podcast exists in the way that it does, it's because of the Center for the Healing Arts and Sciences. So check it out at uh, thecenterforhas.com. Again, links below. And uh, a question to contemplate through this episode I'm very curious. I've got a couple of books and, and interviews that are coming up on this subject, but culture. I want to I want to explore culture, and I'm certainly thinking about how culture can become sick, and in what ways the culture, the overlay of the culture onto the individual can corrupt and distort um, the fluid expression of um, that that individual. And in in the kind of Jungian psychoanalytic world, we talk about adaptations. So adaptations that we make through our individual developmental lives. Um, the idea here is that we do that also culturally. We, we try to fit into a culture, and the culture might not be the right fit. So I want to explore this in depth and go over to the Instagram page for The Sacred Speaks and post any comments or thoughts or 
uh, send me a message over there about your thoughts about culture and being sick. Any recommendations that you got as far as reading is concerned? It's a subject I really want to dig into. Okay, for now, check out The Sacred Speaks at thesacredspeaks.com. And other than that, I think that's all. So for now, we'll leave it there. Thanks for joining us. And be sure to share the episode and post about it and, uh, and like everything that's out there. Uh, much appreciated. For now, we'll leave it there. Miriam, thanks for joining. I, uh, we're, we're, we're ha- we have a lot of different intersections, and, uh, and I know a, a good deal of people who speak very highly of you and your work. I was able to see at least Cody. I saw Cody present at, uh, at MAPS, but I had so many other things. It was kind of wild. Uh, so I'm looking forward to meeting you at the Parliament of World Religions in Chicago soon. And, uh, and thanks for joining here today. We're going to talk a lot about some material that has, of course, been represented in this podcast, but so much that hasn't. So your voice, as we were talking earlier, getting acquainted, your voice uh, speaking for traditional um, cultures, a traditional medicine um, ceremony, uh, and, and I think that larger question of culture and, and this major question of what we're looking at on how do we introduce these radically destabilizing compounds uh, to our uh, religion and, and spiritual culture here, in, in, and certainly in the United States, but in the West. So I'm, mm. I'm happy to have you here. And uh, I'd love to start with just who you are and what, what brought you into using your voice to speak for so many who aren't included at the table. Hmm. Well, thank you, John. It's good good to be here with you and yeah. see those mountains behind you. <laughs> Beautiful. Um, yeah, so I'm the co-director of the River Sticks Foundation. And River Sticks Foundation, we have an interesting way of uh, tracking our mission, but uh, but the core of what we do is things that have been stigmatized by society or marginalized in ways or kept down um, that are now being worked with in a way that really brings more balance, health, healing, homeostasis. Um, we're there to support those things moving forward into society and into culture in a good way. And so that's sort of our rubric. And for me, I uh, have a background in studying ecology and soil science. And I worked for many years doing multi-stakeholder work and community education around uh, sustainable regenerative agriculture and water issues and climate issues. I even spent some time doing climate action plan work for the state of California on different ag industries like dairy and things like that. And so my work with River Sticks now where I focus um, not exclusively, but a lot on supporting the conservation of traditional knowledge holding indigenous communities in the face of kind of this psychedelic boom that's happening, uh, you know, really comes out of 
um, doing a lot of work for protecting our environment and our ecosystems. And I believe those things are, are deeply connected. Mm-hmm. Well, talk to me about that, That because I read that about soil conservation and <laughs> And I see it. We just had somebody in our clinical practice, we had somebody come out that runs a farm just outside of town. And she said she started working as a farmer to grow organic fruits and vegetables. And very quickly, she realized that she was not a farmer of fruits and vegetables, that she was a farmer of soil. <laughs> and I thought that was a great um, metaphor, too. You know, the, 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 the soil that we tend to and how often we, we go right to the fruit. And so I'm wondering how we can kind of paint that picture about, because uh, I'm very curious about how uh, the the entheogens got your attention in the world of ecology and uh, traditional medicine and the like. Mm-hmm. Well, as you know, along with supporting um, traditional knowledge holding communities to have their own medicine sovereignty and their own ability to protect their cultural knowledge, which cannot be separated from their territories and the places Mm. that they live. We also support uh, religious professionals that come from more Western traditions in connecting uh, with these medicines. And the connection there is this, um, there's some kind of a relationship between a direct experience of Mm. the divine or of the sacred that that we hope these medicines can um, provide for many, many people. There's a direct relationship between that and I think what, you know, taking care of our food and our water can, can do. If we have a direct connection to where our food comes from, and the way that mm. that takes care of our body and the way that we can feed ourselves and nourish ourselves without harming the environments and the territories that we live in. Uh, for me, those things are very related. You know, do we know where our food comes from? Do we know where our medicine comes from? <laughs> do we, um, taking our food into our bodies and taking medicine into our bodies, are we becoming more, you know, directly connected with the source of divinity, with the source of life, those kind of things? And so for me, it's a very natural. A trajectory to be committed to supporting communities to really um, be engaged and involved with um, food and soil and uh, where life comes from, to be engaged in supporting communities to be directly connected and, and understand the context in which they would be taking medicines that are more consciousness medicines or spiritual medicines or um, as well. Well, I, uh, I really want to uh, <laughs> take advantage of having you here and uh, pretend that I am an alien that doesn't know any of these issues and I don't know what's going on in these common 
you know, Western and traditional and medicine. And, and so could you just kind of lay out the problem as you see it for, and am I using the correct language? I, I tend to say Westerner. I, I know that's a shorthand that doesn't quite get to what we're talking about. But again, I'm an alien. Help me understand what's going on in this current world of indigenous traditional medicine and Western medicine, reductionist medicine, maybe we could call it that. Mm. Well, I think my understanding, which is pretty, which is limited, is that um, mainstream culture and the place where we, we are now, and there's a lot of reasons for this, right, is fairly disconnected from a lot of things. We're disconnected from each other. We're disconnected from healthy community processes. We're disconnected from the earth. Um, we're disconnected from um, sort of cultural and uh, containers for helping us really know um, you know, who we are and find meaning in our lives. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think we can, we, they're all over the news all the time are all these examples of the ways that we're disconnected. And we talk about, um, and we read about that we have this mental health crisis right now, you know, that um, there's a lot of suicidality, there's a lot of depression, there's a lot of anxiety. Um, people have trauma that they don't have methodologies in their families or communities for overcoming. And this psychedelic boom is really kind of happening at this moment when there's a lot of interest and it's a primary concern to address this mental health crisis, right? And underpinning that mental health crisis, you know, we hear things about disconnection, but my understanding is that um, that disconnection at the root of it is just just from nature and where we live and kind of, um, I, for lack of a better phrase, like life lifing, you know, mm -hmm. we're, we're a little bit dif disconnected from just, um, you know, kind of the, you know, wonder, enjoyment beauty and also really practical ways that um that um we can connect with uh nature each other and life and you know we could say that's because there's over eight billion people and mm -hmm. urbanization and mm -hmm. um all the industrial things and our uh the ways that our technology works and being connected to our phones instead of whatever you know there's a lot of you know reasons for that um you know the history of some of our primary religions which has maybe caused us to be you know disconnected from feeling like we're directly engaged with the, the divine or life lifing or whatever you want to call it and um so I think, you know, one of the really big risks of this like hunger and need and desire for connection and then um, reaching out for finding that connection and it's, you know, different for different people from these medicines. One of the risks that I particularly am concerned with is that 
it will just be another wave of colonial behavior, mm-hmm. um, which will then negatively impact um, the people uh, and then the territories that they live in um, that have often been at the brunt of kind of colonial waves like um, like energy extraction or uh, taking trees or, you know, the way that agriculture is worked, um, in the Amazon. And so I think, I personally think one of the things we should be unequivocally the most committed to, I think it's actually one of the most important things with the psychedelic boom is that we do whatever we can to ensure that the Western or mainstream search for connection and healing and health and, you know, spiritual health and mental health does not become another wave of colonial kind of extractive behavior. Mm. And I feel like not only is that kind of, for lack of a better word, like a, a moral imperative, but it's also um, really important for the state that we're in right now, which is, you know, we're in the sixth greatest extinction, which is the first, you know, really human mediated extinction. You know, we have biodiversity. We're losing species every day. Um, We're all familiar with what's happening with climate change and the way that it's human mitigated. And a lot of these communities which have their intact traditional knowledge um, and also our medicine communities live in the territories that are unequivocally the most important for mitigating how climate change is going to happen. You know, take the Amazon or the African jungle, for example. These are people whose knowledges are tied to the land where they are. And if they're, um, if they have increased pressure from the psychedelic boom, along with the oil extraction, the land rights issues, and all of that then they're less and less able to take care of those places on the earth that we all need to be well taken care of. So for me, there's a connection between all of these things. And, you know, my idealistic part believes that if the Western world can navigate the psychedelic boom to really provide more connection and healing without harming and causing further damage and pressure to those communities that we all need to be really healthy and strong, that that's the only way that the psychedelic boom is going to be integrated in a, you know, truly healthful way into mainstream society, because otherwise it's um, going to be another, another damaging one to, um, yeah, these really, really precious, precious cultures. So as I pay, <laughs> as, as I pay attention to my own mental health, as you're talking about this, my anxiety, <laughs> despite, despite my, uh, you know, the aspen trees blowing in the background, I'm freaking the fuck out. So, <laughs> so. So I take my overwhelmment and I, I imagine what it's like to sit around at your conference table, you know, at River Sticks or any one of the other advocacy communities that you're involved in. 
and I, I feel <laughs> I feel that sense of overwhelmment. I mean, because you're talking about on some level shifting the the entire like um, reality creating mode of uh, I I use the term Westerner and I correct it into reductionist. Um, and you said this term extractive uh, behavior, which you know let's let's really define this. You know we're talking about extracting the particular and not thinking about the whole. You know, and right. so in Western medicine, our our imaging system does this. You know, we say, okay, I've got an MRI and I can see that thing, but that thing is disconnected from the whole entire network of the human body and the human spirit and our interpersonal relationships. You know, this deeply interconnected network that we're all a part of. And and one of the ways that a, a, a more reductionist model uh, proposes is that we identify the symptom, which is what we do in mental health. Um, mm -hmm. We identify the uh, resource, which is what we mm -hmm. do ecologically. And culturally, we identify the process or the the behavior and try to extract that. And so what I love that you're doing is you're integrating all these things together to say that you can go at them in any way, but you chose to really take this on by looking at traditional medicine pro ceremony, traditional medicine ceremony, indigenous communities. Why is that your, your, the tip of the spear for you? Mm, because, because if this psychedelic boom can really, really address some of these uh, diseases or uh, that come from disconnection oh. without harming um, and sort of perpetuating another colonial wave, which we could probably extrapolate the previous colonial waves are related to why we have that disconnection. I believe that if we can do that, it will lead to a much more complete and deeply integrated uh, healing revolution, which is, I think, what we all, you know, want this period of time to be. And so I think it's really, you know, one of the ways that we're disconnected is we have a hard time thinking ahead way into the future and then making mm. our decisions based on having health in the future, you know, whether it's for our grandchildren or other people's grandchildren or um, however, you know, that works for us. So, so one of the questions that I think we're asking is 50 years from now, you know, as we go into this psychedelic boom and we're creating it and, you know, before all the structures are in place for how it's, you know, integrated into society, we still have some time. And we think, what is it that we want to uh, see? What are the really important pieces that would be attended to? And, you know, I think it sounds very simplistic, but for us, it seems unequivocally primary that we haven't caused more trauma than we've addressed. And one of the um, places where we know there's already problems and traumas uh, happening is at this interface of 
the Western search for how to integrate these things into society and indigenous traditional knowledge holders. So, you know, it makes a lot of sense that people would want to go to the people who have, you know, thousands of years of, of knowledge um, in order to gain knowledge about how to do these things. But if you think about it, jumping right there is extractive and mm. it doesn't take into account the context of history and things that have happened in the past. And so I think it's a really important question. How do we do that in a good way? How do we do that in right relationship? What needs to happen first? And what we've landed on that needs to happen first is in the next 10, 15, maybe 20 years, it's unequivocally important that traditional knowledge holding and territorial communities have what they need in terms of infrastructure, in terms of governance, in terms of knowledge about what's happening in the world, to know that they can protect um, their medicines and their communities and their culture into the future. And only from a place of them being very strong and intact and coming from their own cultural wisdom and having security in their homes, will they then be able to really um, meet this Western need as um, sort of uh, strong in a strong place and, and be able to help guide how that interaction should happen? Mm. Um, because a lot of times what we do is like in a medical context, I won't tell you how many people I've talked to in a research context who are like, oh, well, we should just go get some of that knowledge about how the ceremonies work and we can put that into our clinical trial. You're just like, oh my, you know, um, and that's, um, and that's not somebody trying to be bad or mean it's just jumping a lot of steps of how relationships work and one of the things that i feel really grateful for in my life is having studied ecology ecology is a western science that studies it's this that's the study of relationships between things and so there's a way where studying ecology really trains you oh actually the relationships between things are really really important so so I think that um, this inquiry about what's what is a good relationship look like between, you know, sort of a Western, whether it's like medical or lay person, um, you know, uh, attempt to develop some cultural norms around how to integrate these medicines. What is a good relationship look like with what you could call like sort of older siblings or aunts and uncles, like people who are further down the road on this, um, you know, and probably it's not, hey, just give me what you have. <laughs> well, it would first take, there would, there, would, there would first need to be an attitude of humility uh, to recognize that the, the nature of scientism is that it's inherently incomplete. The model itself mm. is, is a, is is a is about recognizing its incompleteness so that you can seek to study and yet it then mm -hmm. forgets that and so on, on this note because you've sat around with so many different traditional healers and indigenous folks what's the diagnosis because i let me let me fill in this blank most of the people that come into my office they have symptoms 
right? They, they, they come in because they're, you know, crying too much or they're in the same relationship over and over again or they're, they've got anger issues, you know. Mm-hmm. And, all, and all that's, it's true, but also they feel stuck. They feel unable to respond. They feel empty. They feel unfulfilled. They feel almost like an existential malaise that 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 even the the vibrancy of life is is they can't connect with it, and so they'll tend to find addictions. And certainly, our culture is is quick to provide alcohol as a as a balm, you know, for that. So I, I'm wondering if we flip it and we say, what do you hear from these indigenous leaders? as far as a diagnosis is concerned what mm-hmm. I, I, you know i always want to look outside of myself and listen to people who are, are outside of my perspective because they'll see things that i don't see so what mm-hmm. do you hear when you sit around mm-hmm. those tables well one thing i hear that i think is really important for this conversation is that what is needed is for each of us to really find um, our own cultural lineages and Mm. connect with those things. And um, I think we actually started um, this conversation with you sharing a little bit about that, you know, that you are wanting to, um, you know, that it was really exciting to read the immortality key and realize that there was all this like knowledge and information there. And I think um, I hear that from a lot of different people in the territories. Mm-hmm. You know, what if we were to all really lean into what there is of our own, you know, kind of cultural lineages and get to know ourselves that way? I also think um, getting to know the place where you live. I mean, we're all, you know, many of us are in these diasporas, even in, you know, in Native American communities, they've been moved and they're in different places. And, you know, one of the things we hear from a lot of the, um, you know, community leaders that are territorial, um, indigenous leaders that we're supporting is that the languages and the ceremonies and Um, the ways you work with medicine are all tied to a place. Um, The the names things have are tied to a place and connected to those things. So if you just extract them and stick them somewhere else, they're kind of outside of the context of the root of Mm. what they're really connected to. And, you know, and so even before I was doing this work, you know, more doing agricultural or water conservation work, uh, that is part of what you notice in communities is that there's real meaning making by learning to take care of where you are, you know, your Mm. your home, your community, um, and and then bringing in who you are in your own lineage not that you can't learn from you know from other cultures and other mm-hmm. people in other places obviously that's how you know we're we're in a global community at this point but that there's a real power and a real need right now for uh for people to do that actually when we um, started as seed funders with the Indigenous Medicine Conservation Fund, which I'm still the interim director of, although we're um, bringing on, we found we're bringing on co-directors and our first one is a Colombian Indigenous um, person. And 
and it'll have leadership from territorial communities. But when we first were asked by several people we were supporting, several communities we were supporting to create the uh, Indigenous Medicine Conservation Fund, that was one of the conversations is that um, like for Westerners, what they really need right now is to connect as much as they can with their own with their own cultures and people really need to be learning their um, their cultural traditions and the containers that they have. And, you know, everybody on the planet has some form of disconnection from their culture. You know, we, mm. in the peyote work that we do, we, um, the language that we hear a lot from the elders is reconnection, that the conservation effort is a lot about reconnecting young people, old people um, to the land, to the life cycle of their medicine, to traditional ways of giving offerings um, to their own cultures and really and to their languages and really celebrating those things. And it's no different for, you know, those of us who are part of the Western, you know, diaspora for a lack of a better word. And so that's something that I hear a lot. And then I think um, I don't hear this language, but this is how I translate it into a short you know, blurb would be having good manners. So <laughs> I remember my mom telling me, um, you know, because I was a little bit rebellious, um, she'd be like, manners are about making the people that you're having dinner with comfortable. Yeah. So, you know, if you're somewhere where people like eat with their hands and go like this, then that's good manners. And if you're somewhere where, you know, you want to make people comfortable. So what does it look like to have, you know, good manners with our neighbors and, and with other people who also want to have um, their cultures intact and have a, a, a beautiful future? And to me, that means you don't just go take, um, you find out what respect looks like to them. You engage with supporting without a need for um, getting something back from it first in order to build trust. Um, and then you go from there. And there's a lot of listening involved in that, right? Listening to, oh, you know, what will have this be a good relationship? You know, we, we hear a lot about like reciprocity in this space in these days, like we want to get to reciprocity. But because of where we're at in history, there's a lot of a lot of things that have to happen before reciprocity can happen. There has to be some kind of reparations. There has to be honoring. There has to be respect. There has to be listening. And then you find your way to finding what's reciprocal. It's, it's so beautiful. It inspires a lot. And the first thing I feel, again, <laughs> kicking this can down the road is this is is a disconnection from it's a sadness and and a desire it's like a yearning to have a culture that feels rich and yeah. I, I my cynical side kind of comes out here because I, I say this a lot to folks i'm like well buddhism does it right buddhism says in the four noble truths that okay we cling to things that are p pleasurable and we avoid things that are uncomfortable and mm -hmm. I, I think in modernity, we certainly do that to an extreme because, you know, I'm surrounded by all the technological advances that help creature comforts and connection, even our connection here, our ability to connect over a distance. 
Mm-hmm. But, but but I think that can't be the culture. It it I just feel so un un like disconnected from that lineage. And I notice mm-hmm. that my my reading of Immortality Key and everything I've connected with since on some level has been an attempt to you know what was it Thumper in in Bambi that looks around and go, "Will you? Are you my mommy? <laughs> right, totally. Are you my daddy? Are you my mommy? Where are you?" It's like we're we're looking for this community, <laughs> I think, you know, and um, and we find it. And and I think I want to go back to substance for a second because Jung said something very beautiful about alcohol. He said that alcoholics are um, spiritual people; they just found the wrong spirits. Right. And and there's so much to unpack in that um that that so I imagine that I'm some kid that finds psilocybin in you know from somebody in my high school and I start doing it I'm like holy shit like there's no way to comprehend current day there's a little you have the ability to find a community more but but when mm-hmm. you don't have a ceremonial community that's saying this is how you approach this with reverence this is how you don't get overwhelmed by these radical divine experiences, which I, I, I can't even call it anything else, but these these mm. overwhelming experiences that shatter the boundaries and narratives of our ego and confront us with aspects of reality that are beyond our comprehension. I mean, I get it why we're looking in the West right now to in a we're so concerned about what's happening with the psychedelic boom because if you have that experience and no real home to experience it and no boundary lines to bump up against mm-hmm. number one you've got to do it all your own which okay i can get that right and i've largely done that in a lot of ways this podcast mm-hmm. is that <laughs> but number two um you're at risk of uh, of not finding that home and, and and walking around pretty aimlessly with this experience that you have no way of, of of orienting to. So I just threw some stuff out there. What comes up for you as I say all that? Yeah. Well, first of all, um, I have the, the you know just the same concerns, you know, and um, and I um hear you completely and i think it's uh there's not an easy answer and it's complicated i think you know what comes up for me then is like some really simple things um even the conversation we were just having i think is really really important in this you know like starting with kind of home base and i and actually i was talking with somebody recently about you know could there be a like a little cartoon series or something that, you know, got and went out and was just about things like, um, you know, if you're wanting to um, have an experience that's, you know, healing and connective and all of that, and you want to be able to integrate it into your life in a good way, you know, some of the things you can do are, you know, like, what are the basics? Like, um, you know, like, could you, um, you know, share with people that having like a five minute um, meditation for the week ahead of time might be smart or eating some good clean food for the week ahead and the week after, 
or um, you know some really basic somatic um, support things like remember to you know feel your feet or you know track your parasympathetic responses but in like really easy language like we were trying to grapple with what are these um, really simple things that are very, very universal that aren't kind of extractive and grandiose and also don't require like a huge, you know, like, you know, multi thousands of dollars, you know, like medical research on (laughs) setting, you know, that could get into the communities that just help you stay, you know, with yourself and support good integration. You know, what are the things that we do know and have culturally that are fairly universal that could just start becoming really part of the normal narrative um, uh, about just like normal practices. So I think that's a lot of um, the work that has to happen right now is Um, for people to be really thinking about looking at sharing just some of these really basic, simple things, Mm -hmm. you know? What came up as you were talking is this, um, again, I go back to oftentimes a person in the clinician's office in the modern West is seeking symptom reduction it's it's on some level a narcissistic endeavor you know like i need to feel better i need, like it's this kind of um I, I change me i need to be different i don't mean that critically i mean that like i understand it you know because when you're feeling yeah. overwhelmed and un- uncomfortable and suicidal you want that to stop so i i don't mean that in, in any dismissive way but what i hear you saying is how often in more ecologically minded spiritual approaches or more indigenous or traditional approaches that right relationship is emphasized. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. And so, and so you hear that like when you're in a more collectivist culture, you're, you're trying to find out where you've been off in relationship to those that are networked with you. And what does this symptom mean in relationship to others that you're in relationship with, as opposed to let me get rid of this symptom because it's making me uncomfortable? I think both have to be true, but could could we say that one diagnostic issue, if we're diagnosing Western modern culture, is that the set point thinks in terms of symptom reduction as opposed to healthy healing relationship with self, other, and nature? That's that, I think that was was very well said. And I think that that brings us back to this piece of like, you know, the incredible amount of, you know, longing and grief that's in most of our lives from from being disconnected, whether it's disconnected to our own culture, disconnected from our place, disconnected from our community, disconnected from having, you know, really um clear routes for having a meaningful life, you know, whatever that is, I think, you know, the, the starting place is around the really simple ways that you can connect and whether, you know, whatever the history is, we do all live somewhere and we do all come from somewhere Mm. and we are in some network of relationships. So I would 
I personally would would agree with that, that that's a, um, that has to be there. And I know, I mean, I have people with mental health issues in my family and I have that, and there is a need for symptom relief yeah. sometimes because you can't even get to the place if you're yeah. deeply depressed or really having real suicidality of finding a place to connect. And sometimes you just need you know, some relief from the pain in order to find a first place to connect. And I think that's, you know, I mean, I've seen that over and over, but I think um, it's really important on the personal level, the community level, the movement level. I don't know if we're really in a movement. That's why I call it like, the boom, this boom to like, to really pay attention to, um, where the places are that need good connection. And they're not always inside of a time when you like took some medicine, right? It's right. all, it's everything around it. It's preparation, yeah. it's integration. Um, it's how we conduct business. You know, one of the things that we have a lot of um, concern from the indigenous communities that we support is around patents. The whole mm. idea that you can own a molecule that was created by life and the earth and you know whatever your context is like divinely and then you're going to put assign an ownership to it which you know um i had the really awesome good fortune of getting to support one of our partners um in presenting to wipo which is the world intellectual property organization and he is a Diné ceremonial leader. And they asked him, um, so what do you think about intellectual property? And so he really thought about it through his cultural and personal mindset. And what he shared was, well, everything that is about how um, molecules are formed, which is about how uh, the structures of our bodies are formed, or even um, the soils on in different places, mountains versus valleys, all of that, all of the, the intellectual knowledge for how that works and how all the relationships between them are, that actually all belongs to nature. It all belongs to the earth. So there, there is no way that a human law supersedes the unequivocal reality that that belongs to nature, meaning natural processes and the history of the earth and how different atoms have formed with each other. Like there's, it's not possible um, to own that, even if you make a tweak on it or whatever. So. Um, and a lot of indigenous communities are really concerned about this idea of patents and ownership, ownership of sacred medicines, which we know from our human history that ownership does not necessarily lead to good decision making. Right. In fact, it's sometimes the opposite. Yeah. Right. And so, um, anyways, that's what came, you know, comes to my mind with this, where, you know, it's really, really important that we not lose the connection between we have an individual person with a mental health issue who's 
you know, really looking for connection. And if we're going to use these medicines to help that person connect, they, it has to be done in a context of relationships to other kinds of support um, and, um, and, and some cultural containers. And whether we like it or not, the way we do business and the way we conduct how people get access to things is part of that relationship. Mm. So I know this maybe sounds a little bit far-fetched, but I think it's part of addressing a mental health and disconnection crisis, mm -hmm. how we do business. And if we start saying that some particular company can own a medicine that is about deep health and healing and is a consciousness medicine, then we're not helping that individual person feel like they can lean into a more, you know, connected, respectful world. And so I'm, I, sometimes I'm a little idealistic, but I hope that this psychedelic boom can take on things like that and, yeah. and draw those kinds of connections. Because if you're, if you're in a room with your iPads on and you're taking a psilocybin, even if it's a synthetic molecule, and there's no acknowledgement within the system that got it to you there of these other relationships, then we're doing the same thing we've done with um, industrial agriculture, where we're not acknowledging relationships. And then we get into situations where we have whole swath of land that are not um, productive anymore and aren't um, full of fertility anymore because we didn't pay attention along the way to making sure that we keep the relationship going between the microorganisms and mm -hmm. when we're applying fertilizer and, you know, all of these things. So, you know, I think there's a lot to be learned by some of the lessons we've learned from, you know, our history with agriculture to some of the things that we need to pay attention to within the psychedelic boom. And it's, um, it's, it's really hard and it's really overwhelming to talk about things like that because it's really complicated and it seems like what would what would your ownership and patent um, process and your business process have to do with like an end user patient who's just trying to get over depression? What would the connection be? Well, how, are we really, really going to forget again that that depression and disconnection is related to all these different ways that we're culturally disconnected. That that's the, thank you for all that, by the way, that's the link is that it's frustrating to me on a clinical level to work with individuals and to consistently see that it's, it's not the individual, it's the culture. And, yeah. and, and how, how are you in relationship with that culture? And in what ways have you, introjected a belief system or a worldview that might have been passed down to you simply because it existed um, within those who came before you, but isn't actually serving you uh, in healthy healing ways, yet you continue to double down on that because it's the only thing you've known. And that to me is why we need the, is, is as, a, as a modern Westerner, I sit around, I'm like, shit, the, the church is not doing it. Right. Like it's it's not. And no offense. I mean, so many of my colleagues and friends are actively involved in the church and they'll they're the ones that I have these conversations with the most, um, mm. you know, because of the systemic issues in the church, the cultural dynamics that are, you know, have been passed along um, 
in in various traditions in we'll say Christian uh, traditions in particular. Um, and so it 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 feels a little sick that the individual is the one that's manifesting the symptom of the deeper cultural issue that it mm -hmm. seems to me and here's my my idealistic projection is that i idealize indigenous traditional communities in this way and and mm -hmm. i say oh my gosh you know this community collective connected you know i know there are problems there there's shadow there too and and also it certainly does reveal something that i think we're lacking in in this western culture of the the deeply connected deeply present um, to to listen mm -hmm. um, to listen deeply like to the microorganisms how do you listen to microorganisms mm -hmm. you know uh <laughs> seems like a valid question um but i uh, but but it brought up something about kind of where you are in your life I, I found myself, as you were talking a second ago, uh, curious about what you're working on right now that's making you really excited and that's tapping into that idealism. And then also, what are you working on right now that's very concerning that uh, the lay people out there in the world who don't sit around the table with indigenous uh, leaders, uh, what, what would you, what do you want them to know? What's important? Hmm. Well, I right now I would say I have two disparate things that um working on that are really exciting. Maybe three. I'll say three. <laughs> and one actually is um through River Sticks, we support a couple different kinds of efforts of really ensuring that um good cycles are in place in things that happen all the time. So we support compost toilets, for example, so getting used. <laughs> and so, um, and, and I feel like that's really, really important. That's something that every single person has to deal with their waste every single day. <laughs> and we can actually like, imagine if you had a quorum of people in the United States who didn't actually have to um, put that in clean water and mm. actually got to turn it into something beautiful that will grow more food. And frankly, with the level of population that we have, we better figure this out. And yeah. so that to me, super inspiring, super exciting. I think it's a really, it's like a personal um, cultural thing that um, in the United States, not very many people get to have the experience of other places they do that actually really helps you pay attention to just yourself <laughs> and where what you're contributing to, right? So what am I contributing to today? And if you have a compost toilet, you get to know that you're contributing to the future fertility of some beautiful place. Um, I, so I, that's saw, one thing. I saw Patricia Arquette in a in a documentary, and she says this line of "keep the keep the poop in the loop" was the was the line, and I loved it because again, this is not we don't exactly sit around talking about our waste, and I think that's sad because it's so important for us to ask that question of what where where's my waste going. What do I eat? Where's my waste going? And, and, and is it in <laughs> is it in a loop? Is it in a poop yeah. loop yeah. that will then come back to me and come back to you know somebody totally. getting it? So um, super excited about 
about that. I feel like it's really, I mean, it sounds mundane. It's so mundane, right? But it actually has very high impact. And by the same token, we're really supporting um, composting of human bodies once they pass. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. we've supported through Recompose the um, like law changes so it can happen. And then the creation of these beautiful spaces. Um, we've been doing that now six, almost seven years, I wow. think, um, with River Sticks as a big commitment. And now um, those places have waiting lists. Um, it's an incredible way of addressing the problems of cremation in urban yeah. areas, because if you're in the country, it's one thing, but in urban areas, you don't have, um, you know, the option to be buried right in the ground. And so I'm super excited about that for the same reason. There's a way of just connecting the normal person to the cycles of, of the earth. And I mm -hmm. feel like that's a very reconnecting um, piece. I'm sure it's not for everybody, but it's amazing how exciting and interested people are in getting to um, know that their you know bodies would actually be composted. Maybe they would go to a uh, conservation forest that's for climate change mitigation, mm. or maybe a meadow, or maybe you know it engenders these conversations of oh, would I want to be um, decomposed by the same microorganisms that were in a meadow or a forest or a mountain? And it it's just kind of you know very connecting. <laughs> so I have. Um, I feel like those kinds of things are unequivocally important. And then, you know, the religious professionals work that you know about or religious leaders work, I think is really crucial because it's, um, it's really about reigniting and reinvigorating religious leaders connection to their own um, faith structures yeah and finding the more um, direct guidance within them and reconnecting them to a direct experience of the divine. And I think that can only be good culturally. Uh, I think that, you know, there's a lot of healing to be done with, especially within, you know, Christianity about their, its historical impacts on um, certainly indigenous people and um, on the earth, but it feels like some kind of direct connection um, is is going to help with that and also help reinvigorate the those religions capacity to be a support and a positive community influence um, and a source of um, you know community regulation and mm. and for a better word. Um, and then, of course, um, the third thing is really this indigenous medicine conservation work, the ability. I mean, I just feel so honored that I get to be unequivocally committed to placing the needs and wants and direction of traditional communities as the strategic guide for how to ensure that they have everything they need to be able to weather, you know, the next 20, 50 years with their cultures and medicine traditions more intact and more strong than maybe they even were, you know, 15 years ago. 
you know, for them to be able to continue that. And I feel like it's really important to just focus on those communities having what they need and want and being the directors of what that looks like. And if there's some kind of exchange with dominant culture at some point, that will come from right relationship. So mm. those are the three things I feel really excited and honored to get to work on. <laughs> what I like about <clears throat> what I like about what we're talking about is that we're, we're not talking about the experiences that people have when they take medicine. You know these these medicines. To me, it's it's so. Uh, I really appreciate the the inclusive nature of the way you're talking about all these various issues. You know, I, we can talk about traditional <laughs> medicine ceremony and very quickly connect composting toilets, which, uh, you know, <laughs> that's <laughs> it's not that. You know, maybe that that's that part of me that's like how. how I mean, I totally get it and. I empathize with people who are like, how the hell did you get there? You know, and, but it's the, my projection is that the way we got there is that when you think in terms of those networks and those relationships with, um, beyond your own, um, experience, you, 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 it, you have to think in terms of how you're showing up in relationship to food, water, earth, other self, uh, and, and, just, I, I'm just pretty moved by the um, the wide range that you, <laughs> that you offer, um, which so so now going to the other side, which is what are the challenges that you're facing? The, the any of the struggles? Mm. Well. <laughs> Um, I think I have to think first again. <laughs> take your so time. Many. Yeah, take your um, time. Well, I think that even, even though a lot of what we've been talking about in a way is going back to basics, mm. uh, I would say it's also a lot of change. And so anytime you're doing work that's about changing people's point of view, changing their behavior, um, changing, you know, economic or science structures, you know, anytime you're trying to change things, even if it seems to you like it's towards something more simple, that um, there's always pushback and there's always um, complications and there's always, you know, yeah, the process of change, even again, like I said, if it seems to you like it's simple, has um, disruption of some kind in it. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, so one of the things that River Sticks does is when we feel like something's really, really important, we're a very small foundation, but we leverage um, what we do have to give, and we leverage the fact that we do very deep due diligence and deeply engaged relationships to raise other funds. And so one thing that's a challenge is always, um, you know, uh, supporting other people to 
um, like in the philanthropy space, for example, to see what um, what we see as important as important and kind of leverage ourselves to be able to really uh, put enough resources behind something that it can weather actually being a change that becomes really solid, right? Uh, and so when you're kind of out at some edges, that's that there's always a challenge there. Um, and and when you're challenging kind of a status quo way of thinking. So so sometimes for me personally, I'll just share, I just sometimes things just seem so obvious and I just want to get to work, but I have to learn how to like communicate, you know, from the beginning to the end and the rationale and slow down and do those kind of things. And, um, and then I think, you know, supporting indigenous communities, there's a lot of challenge there because these are communities that have, you know, five centuries of a lot of direct trauma a lot of it's intergenerational. And um, so there's a lot of like politics and competition and it's um, really delicate to start bringing support into some of these communities. It can be very disruptive. And so just having to be so careful all the time and um, kind of really slow down and make sure that there's a good balance within the communities that the right people are directing you it's it's really challenging and it's straight and, and frankly i a lot of the anxiety that i carry is around misstepping those things and the fear mm -hmm. that will do harm um uh either unintentionally or something like that in these you know communities that are so precious and already have so many pressures mm -hmm. and so you know we have one of our conservation we call it con our conservation committee members um in the indigenous medicine conservation fund you know because we have a an ethic of do no harm you know it's just like a medical ethic sure. um who always says well we're going to do as little harm as we can and there's going to be a few harms and and that that's really uh i struggle with that a lot um and and sometimes struggle with like we're being very brave by moving into the territory but um but yeah sometimes i just want to put on the brakes with certain things and wait until we really know a lot more and um yeah so I, I i struggle with i personally struggle with that and i think it's one of the big challenges is that these are already de delicate complicated communities and mm -hmm. so interface between sort of the western mainstream psychedelic boom and these communities has to happen those voices need to be there because it impacts them but even the the interface like you know we just um, supported a group to come to MAPS and they got to, um, you know, we had indigenous community leaders from Mazatec, from South America, from North America, and, um, and they got to say some of these really important things about, you know, respect and about slowing down and about um, oh, patents. And, you know, they got to say those things themselves to that big explosion, you know, thing at MAPS. 
And um, but then they also get criticized by their own communities. Why are you talking to those people? Why are you there? Yeah. And so there's always like some, you know, risk to this, you know, exposure at this interface. And so that's 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 really challenging to, you know, navigate um, in a good way and support the people I'm supposed to be supporting um, with knowledge and information and 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 spaces to be that are direct without also feeling like you're kind of harming something or there's something a little dirty or you wish you didn't have to have like a an elder have to go into a space like that or you know it's so foreign to them um yeah and then i think you know the other big challenge is which you kind of alluded to is i think um this personal longing and need and the mental health crisis and all of that it's really hard to talk about when you have these personal crises i just had a nephew who commit suicide recently so i've really been you know really thinking a lot about this like um how do you really communicate in a way that's understood the connection between that individual and these, you know, larger processes and systems? I think sometimes um, in the public health arena, there's people who are good at talking about that. Like we learned through the obesity epidemic, you there's it's not an individual who has it, just an individual who has obesity. You have to address that, but it's also our whole food system and what people yeah. have access to and their economic situation and all of that. So we do ha have ways of understanding the connection between the individual and these these bigger um, structures, but that's a big challenge for me. Um, I think especially in the psychedelic um, space is communicating about um, about how those things move, can move hand in hand. Yeah. <clears throat> I wish your family. There's a lot of worry in doing this work. Mm -hmm. What's that? I wish your family healing. I'm... Mm, thank you. Yeah. You. I I am consistently in family systems and spaces where losses like this reverberate through so many lives. So just sitting with that for a moment. Yeah. Um. But it 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 goes to this broader issue about our mental health and certainly, um, you know, the experiences that that I have heard of and been a part of with these the sacraments and medicines and compounds that are used traditionally in indigenous contexts seem to point us toward the things that we don't want to look at in our conscious lives, like death, yeah. like aging, like yeah. uh, the pain of our own existential terror of yeah. being a finite uh, being, you know, for, for uh, the time that we're here. And regardless of theology or metaphysics, just so um, when I think about suicide and it, what hurts me so much is that there is a part of me that, that wishes we we did have the access to these compounds to work with the things that we we usually don't talk about. We're certainly not confronted by. Yeah. You know, it, it seems to work on like our disgust systems, you know, the things that we 
resist and then we're caught by. So, so taking that thread, I'm, I'm curious about what you're seeing in the, if we could just kind of compare a little bit, how indigenous communities tend to use these medicines versus how modern Western folks tend to use these medicines. What well, you... where, I'll, where I'll start is from my seat as an ecologist. Mm -hmm. And I actually think this is really important. I don't know of any story in traditional medicine communities where people take more than they need. Mm -hmm. In the last 15 years, for example, with Iboga, which is, mm -hmm. you know, dress countless individual, you know, um, healing experiences from trauma and the vets community and other communities, opioid use disorder. It's incredible. In those 15 years, the Iboga plant, Tabernathi Iboga, is now almost impossible for traditional users to find. It is being exported because of poaching. The same people who are poaching elephant tusks are poaching mm -hmm. Iboga. And it is going to be gone if it isn't directly addressed in a really, really good way. Mm. So that's where you're getting your healing from, from a place that is going to lead to the same kind of behavior that is probably why you needed the healing mm. in the first place. Okay. Toad, Zappo, right? Has gone in the last six years from being an incredibly abundant creature sacred to the Yaki as part of their creation story to being probably the data will be coming in this season put on not just the threatened species list, but heading towards extinction. So I would say a primary difference is that traditional medicine communities take what they need for healing. They don't take a whole bunch of extra for commercial purposes. Mm. They don't take a whole bunch of extra for fun, right? You take what you need. And so I personally think this is a part of it. I know that's maybe, you know, not the answer that people want to hear because it's complicated. How do you figure out how to you know, connect people to just taking what they need and really having it be about healing. So that's one thing I can't help mention. Um, it's really, you know, really important. Um, <clears throat> even Wachuma, we're learning, which is this incredibly sturdy, unbelievable, you know, plant that you can actually grow almost anywhere but there's many, many varieties in the highlands of Peru. And there are whole valleys that have um, certain strains that are now almost, uh, they're almost gone because of the Wachuma kind of tourism trade. So I'm not saying this is easy, but this, um, but um, I think we have to figure out ways of connecting people to these really deeply healing medicine experiences without doing more destruction hmm. so anyways maybe ask your question again because no, I, I that what I, I was reflecting I, on is two things the first thing is that i noticed you got fired up as soon as i asked the question so there's 
There's some energy that's stirred in there. And the second thing is I was back at your comment about manners. And, uh, and, and these are, these are powerfully seductive experiences and, um, I don't blame anybody who wants to have an experience and that wants to return to that experience. But in part, I think that what we're looking at is that, that ego, the egoic grasp that we inherently do as humans, we need some kind of guide rails in place to provide us an opportunity to channel those tendencies that we inevitably are confronted with that I think religious traditions have certainly um, mapped out for us uh, yeah. in, in, in our histories. That, but, but now religious tradition, back to my kind of previous argument, is that because we're so, un, we Westerners are unhooked from the initial ecstatic experience, the, the core religious event, and then figuring out how we relate to that event, both individually and collectively, that, that to me is a pretty decent definition of what religion is. And I, I don't think you're going to find that definition in many public spaces in, <laughs> in modernity. <laughs> Well, I, I like that definition very much. And what it brings up for me is another thing that I've heard and thought about a lot is, you know, um, I really had to deeply explore this during the time when I ended up kind of getting in some conflict with decrim nature, mm -hmm. because decrim nature was this movement that was about cognitive liberty and the right to nature. Mm -hmm. And so I, we spent a lot of time sitting with that, like the right, the right to nature. Hmm. And um, some of the indigenous folks and other religious folks I've talked to, you know, it's like, is it a right or is it a responsibility yeah. when something's powerful yeah. and you get to work with it? That actually like where, when did that become a right? Mm -hmm. Um, why isn't that a responsibility? And then that completely shifts mm. the whole way to think about it. And, you know, what if um, it was considered a real responsibility to take on, like, sharing these really powerful consciousness medicines with people who are really hurting and longing for um, more connection? You know, and obviously addiction is really complex and there's, you know, I, I, I'm not trying to simplify it, but if we just turned it around and said, wow, these are really powerful, this, these things have the power to help us feel reconnected or at least set us on a path of knowing where, of having a feeling of being, um, you know, connected whether that's being from just being disconnected from our ego or whatever, and that it's an incredible responsibility to um, then know how to navigate doing life with that. Mm -hmm. And what if we just you know, took, took that on as a frame as opposed to a right? And then I think that in a certain way addresses that um that taking aspect to it, which, you know, when you're hurting, right, of course, when you're hurting, there's, you, you just want to grasp at yeah, things, yeah, right. Totally. And, and get the thing that you need. Um, and so I feel like this piece is a big part of it. Um, culturally is, oh, when I'm hurting, 
Um, how do I find somebody or find in myself, um, you know, the capacity to take responsibility for doing something really major and sacred and that ch changes my my perception and my consciousness and reconnects me with my own lineage or with the divine in general or whatever it that way is and and we maybe we don't um have a right to that maybe mm -hmm. you know, there's a responsibility that comes along with those things those moments i i, I don't mean to be critical of the the right the the right mentality the that mentality you're talking about it but it does yeah. seem a little immature in that it it to 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 me it actually is exactly what i've learned about in the genesis story where there's a there's a mistranslation between stewardship or husbandry is the is the term versus um dominion uh, and and the the enormous mistranslation that contributes to this idea that i have dominion over nature as opposed to i'm i'm in right relationship to be involved in the husbandry of these um the ecology of the world that i'm in and, mm -hmm. and, and those kinds of unfortunate mistranslations are part of what i have to recognize is in me as a human that has a greedy part of me a hateful part of me, a self-serving part of me. And that's my mm -hmm. responsibility is to recognize that all those forces are within me and I have to continue, continually contend with how they show up in my life and how they affect other people. So I, I'm, I'm with you. I, I just, I guess I really align with that, that curiosity that you have around the right versus responsibility. Well, and I think one of the big challenges right now is how do we, within the psychedelic boom, in order for it to really benefit, you know, so many people in our communities, how do we get some structures in place, yeah. um, some norms in place that support us the same way you were talking about religion is supposed to support us, support us to not have our decision-making and what we're creating right now be driven by that, like the greed part or the, like, I have the right part or the, and I think that's one of the big challenges is, is how do we um, have structures in place, which, which help us because yeah. we're all kind of immature and we all want everything right now. Yes. And we all, you know, get pissed at people and the number of like interpersonal relations that get in the way of like doing the good work and blah, 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 yeah. blah. But so what are those right now, I think is one of the biggest, um, challenges, you know, I think, um, for us at River Sticks, I think clearly this religious leaders piece, whether it's the Western mm -hmm. religious leaders, the traditional indigenous, um, you know, spiritual leadership, really getting supported to be their best and have everything they need to do their work well, seems like a high leverage place. Um, but I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done on the business models and the access models and the um, and the popular knowledge about how to have good containers that help you to prepare and integrate and take responsibility. Um, so, but I think that is a lot of it is, yeah, what are the, 
I mean, I have a big inquiry around it and my, my more cynical side is like, ugh, probably not. It's just going to be like mayhem and, you know, some good things will happen and some messes will be made and here we go, whatever. But, um, but I'm, <laughs> but I'm, um, I really try to stay in this place of like, yeah, what, what are some of those structures that, that will really support the unfolding being about taking responsibility and reconnection mm -hmm. to ourselves, who we are. And yeah. This thought comes up and I want to be mindful of time. So as we start to kind of, you know, mm. kind of merge through our closing, um, this, and again, not to be cynical, because I think going to a concert and having a radical experience with the collective and everybody singing one voice to the music and moving together and, while taking some kind of substance sounds fantastic on a lot of levels. It sounds concerning about what you might open up because it's so unpredictable, the environment. But when you talk about psychedelics for a long, long time, people have been taking LSD and going to concerts and having radically healing, beautiful experiences. So with that said, what I what I hear in more indigenous traditional communities is that the orientation is not just on the the ecstatic experience. It's how you take what you experience in the ecstatic experience and merge that into your mundane life and so that it's part of your daily living that you're that you're that you're exploring and bringing in what you experience so that you live a different life. And that's where we get into this conversation about integration and the importance of having a cultural process by which somebody can orient themselves in that, uh, in how they're bringing the fruits of their labor to benefit the collective. And Joseph Campbell talked a lot about this, of course, that it's like when you go to the underworld, what's the elixir that you bring back to contribute to the whole? And, mm -hmm. and I don't think that a lot of folks you know, a lot of the majority of people don't think in terms of taking LSD, for example, and having an experience to then change your life. I, th I think at least my projection is they're having the experience to have the experience. And that's powerful. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's magical on a lot of levels, but it's just not complete. And I think that's, that's one of the things that this ecological model really gets, which is that interconnection between the sacred and the profane or mundane mm. and how to how to bring those mm -hmm. to to be to be in more healthy relationship than just I go there uh, maybe to church or my sacred place or my sacred ceremony on Friday or Sunday or whatever day and then I have it there versus bringing it here so I, I just to reflect on that I think that's an important part of the process anything come up for you as I say that yeah, I you reminded me of um I had the good fortune of getting to work doing outdoor training with um folks for oh, almost 20 years it's how I put myself through graduate school and the way we would talk about it is you can you can have a peak experience like say yeah. you climb up a tree and you'd bend down and you're going to jump off of it. You know, we've all heard of these like ropes courses or whatever. And, and there actually is a change that happens in that moment. It's a peak experience. You're different in that moment than you were, you know, 10 minutes before. Yeah. Um, and those peak experiences are extremely important. You can actually change in them, but then the work of them comes 
um, afterwards of as you go back down from that peak experience, um, how are you bringing that change forward yeah. and allowing it to last for more than two weeks or um, you know three weeks or whatever? And I think uh, I think that is a, that is really really important. You know, is is how do our peak experiences actually integrate into creating meaning in our daily life? Mm -hmm. Um, giving us tools to address, you know, the ups and downs of like our mental health. Um, you know, how do they actually impact how we engage in our in relationship with, you know, the rest of the the rest of the world? And I think that is a big important, you know, focus point. And if we don't um, integrate some of those experiences, then we're not really utilizing the incredible, you know, power yeah. um, and taking responsibility for yeah. what is available to us through these kind of medicines. That's that's really one of the great themes I'm taking from our conversation about. You know, we hear about this a lot, but in this context, it it resonates differently. The personal responsibility of being in right relationship with your body, your mind, your you know, relationships to the land, the, where you are, who you are in your culture. Mm -hmm. And and owning that, owning that responsibility is something that's empowering. Um, mm -hmm. But where again, your medicine. yeah, mm -hmm. again, again, I, as, as you were talking about uh, medicines, I, I was thinking about the typical Friday night at the bar, you know, and somebody goes out and gets drunk and they have an experience and then it's forgotten. It's, you know, it may have been fun and joyful, but it's not, it's not really into, it's not, it's not integratable. It's not, yeah. you know, so it reminds me of this thing Mark Plotkin said to me a long time ago, where he says that uh, he was talking to a shaman down in South America and the shaman says, you know, your drugs make you feel better and then worse. Our drugs make us feel worse and then better. And I think that's, that summarizes it all so well. That is a good summary. Yeah. I like well, that. I, so I, I am, do you feel, I'd, I'd love to give you an opportunity to fill in any blanks about these funds and the, the nonprofits that you work for. Is there anything we're leaving out there? I certainly want you to point people in that direction. Um, I, I will have mm -hmm. links all over the place, but anything that you'd like to say in closing about uh, about those spaces? Well, I mean, I, I'll, I'll say again that I have a really grand, idealistic, but I think very pragmatic hope that the psychedelic boom, both the people individually, the organizations, the funders, the companies, all of that will deeply attend to ensuring that we're in right relationship with indigenous traditional knowledge holders as we go into, you know, more systematizing this boom, because I just know that in 50 years from now, if we can look back and say, not only did we address massive amounts of 
you know, mental health concerns and reconnection and, and people's lives are deeply, deeply better, you know, from how they feel to how they make decisions. And we did that without harming traditional knowledge holders who have these incredibly precious cultural containers for how they work with medicines and their territories. It's just going to feel so good. <laughs> it's just going to be <laughs> so, so I really think it's one of the solutions to um, having a, um, to having a positive experience that doesn't turn colonial. Yeah. That's a good reminder. Well, anything else at all? Any thread we've left dangling out there? No, just thank you very much. This was actually a really enjoyable conversation for me. And um, it isn't that common that I get to um, be transparent about that. I see a deep connection between what we do with our poo in our bodies to how we navigate the psychedelic boom. So I'm very you grateful. You know, Miriam, I, I'm so happy to provide you the opportunity to connect shit and medicine, medicine space and ecology <laughs> and food. Really, thank you. You're um, I, 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 a gift in this process for me is that as the editor of these podcasts, I get to listen back. And uh, and I'm I'm eager to to reconnect with all the things we've said today. So thank you for what you do in this space. I mean, I'm certainly a beneficiary for what River yeah. Sticks is doing and in all your work. And uh, and I'm I'm grateful. I'm grateful that you're out there on the front lines doing what you're doing, and that uh, that we get to benefit from such a healthy, ecologically minded, um, relationally connected approach. That, it, that your term, I love this term, extractive. I'm going to be using extractive a lot because it's, uh, it, 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 it really does image the harm um, of, that, of that approach, of that extractive approach. So thank you for this and, uh, and for doing what you do. Okay. Thank you, John. 